The Energy Gang is brought to you by Sense. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using, so you can save energy and see what's happening all from your smartphone remotely. It's a little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. To find out more, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. What's the optimal way to spend money from a carbon tax? How should climate play in Florida's big toss-up congressional race? What's the best energy platform for gubernatorial candidates in Illinois? This week, your questions answered. We got a bunch of queries from listeners about politics, so that's the direction we're headed. And they tell us a lot about how energy and climate may factor into the 2018 race. I think I can hear Catherine rubbing her hands together with glee. A policy and politics show? That's your jam. Yeah, totally. Super psyched about this. And and I, I thought it was it was pretty interesting that so many people called in with questions about politics. Well, speaking of politics, you were in Des Moines, Iowa this week. Are you running for president? Uh, no, but uh, I'm running as a champion of Des Moines, Iowa. It was a really nice place to visit. It is. I love Des Moines. That Catherine is Catherine Hamilton. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions and not yet announcing her candidacy for president. She's with us from Washington, D.C. Um, Jigger, I bet you're psyched about this show, too, because you get to talk about your home state of Illinois. I do. I do. And not because the governor went to jail. <laughs> That reminds me, I've been meaning to ask you a question for so long. Do you find it acceptable to put ketchup on a hot dog? Of course. Really? I've heard that people in Illinois call ketchup shame sauce. They do. But that's mostly people that go into Chicago. And that's at that uh, Wiener Schnitzel, whatever, hot dog place. Mm, okay. Um, where they put like sauerkraut and everything else. I grew up in rural Illinois. So we used to buy hot dogs by the 20 pack. And then, uh, you know, put whatever it is that we could do to hide the shame of what we were eating. <laughs> My, I was always told that ketchup was a vegetable. So that's how we got our veggies. Well, if Illinoisans want to be more climate friendly, maybe they can switch from hot dogs to tofu dogs or green sausages. Along with being an Illinoisan, Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He's also in Washington this week. So a couple of things you should know before we get to listener questions. You too can dictate what we talk about on this show. Send us your recorded question from your phone or your computer to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Make it short, get in a quiet room, and maybe we'll feature it in a future episode. And um, as soon as this podcast is published, I'm headed out on vacation for a couple of weeks. Summer is coming to the Lacey household early. So we're not going to have a new episode until the week of June 11th. If you're looking to fill your time, Subscribe to my other podcast, The Interchange. We just covered how electricity would work in a zombie apocalypse. And you can subscribe to our newest podcast from Julia Piper, Political Climate. They're looking deeper at upcoming 2018 races. So don't miss it. It's a double header of politics. Subscribe to both those shows wherever you get your podcasts. And just listen to all our back episodes. We've got plenty to talk about on this show. So now to listener questions. Our first question comes from Daniela Lapidus in New York. My question is, what do you think about 
putting a fee on polluters and reinvesting that money in a clean energy transition and other things such as worker transition and supporting frontline communities. I'm a coalition organizer for New Yorker News, which is developing leg- legislation to do exactly this in New York. And I'm wondering what you think of such a plan as compared to other revenue neutral plans that we've seen. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Daniela. Uh, The central question here revolves around how does a fee and dividend compare to other ways to tax climate pollution? Um, I think there's also another question about political pathways as well. And we've seen this debated in other states, um, a debate that Jigger is very familiar with in Washington state. So maybe we can talk about the politics first. Jigger, is there a pathway for this kind of policy in New York to begin with? Well, I think the answer has to be no uh, to start. But when you think about New York... you've really disappointed our listener. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that when you start with New York, you have to realize that a lot of no's have been turned into yeses, right? When you think about fracking and the ban on fracking in New York, that was not a foregone conclusion. It was certainly not where the governor was leaning. But I think you had so much grassroots activism that he really just had no other choice. And the same thing is true for the energy storage bill in... New York, where the legislature just passed something and the governor was sort of forced to sign it through a lot of pressure. And uh, and the solar, you know, uh, bill that's going through now to fix the Veter um, repayment looks like it has good a good shot. So I wouldn't say that it's impossible to get a cap and dividend done in New York, but I can't imagine that it's going to happen without a huge amount of grassroots, you know, activism. Some of the activists who are behind this have been critical of Governor Cuomo, and they um, they don't think that he's, he's stepped up enough on climate change. Now, Governor Cuomo has done a lot, including back in 2014, eventually backing the uh, ban on fracking. And uh, he, of course, has supported increases in renewable energy and energy storage and so forth. And, and the governor's office has been behind the REV initiative. What do you make of the criticisms that Cuomo hasn't gone far enough on climate stuff? I mean, his goal, they have decarbonization goals of 80% by 2050. They have very strong goals on decarbonization. And I think that they have a lot of political support for that. So even Cynthia Nixon in her campaign is really pushing on reducing carbon and hers is from a social justice perspective. But, you know, you can look at all of the various goals and mandates that they have in place and they are considering this carbon charge. I was at a symposium yesterday where Sam Newell of the Brattle Group was sort of laying out what New York wants to do. So they're considering maybe $40 a ton of CO2 charge. Um, And and then you also have to figure out how does, it doesn't replace the targeted measures, all their other goals, but if they put in a higher price of carbon, the cost of some of those will go to zero. So there isn't a perfect solution, but they are considering this carbon charge. And that could, I, I think it could be done. Um, the, the tricky part is then how is it administered? So I think we should start maybe a little bit from the beginning around how a cap and dividend works. Yeah, I think um, that's really helpful. I was going to get to that. And let, why don't we um, talk about how it works compared to other ways of uh, taxing carbon pollution. So when you think about the way that the Reggie, you know, market works, which is the regional greenhouse gas initiative that includes I don't know how many states, but many states from Massachusetts down in It's nine states. Yeah, it's nine. Nine states. They have an auction process. The polluters pay a fee, let's call it. 
it, uh, five bucks a ton or something, I think is where it's, where it's ended up in recent years. And then that money is then sort of granted to the states and the states use it for whatever they want to use it for. So they might use it for one year. We used it for rebates for solar in Long Island and other reason, other years we've used it for other things, right? So in this case, you would have, let's say, $30, $40 a ton for the price of carbon. That would create a pool of money, of course, that would come to the state. And then the state can do something with it. In most plans, you actually want to dividend a lot of that money back to the families because otherwise it's a regressive tax. Um, so those people who are poor, um, you know, would be paying a higher price for gasoline and for natural gas and for other, you know, um, things that they use that have embedded carbon in them. And then, you know, and, and they're the least capable of paying for those extra taxes. And so you pay a dividend back to them to be able to reimburse them not only for their costs, but actually give them more. Um, and so it's a little bit of a redistribution of wealth. And then normally there's a certain percentage of the of the funds that are used for research and development or incentives for clean energy deployment or for in this proposal that, you know, that I've seen in New York State, it's for um, retraining for uh, displaced workers and for some environmental justice um, issues, etc. And so that balance, though, is very um, fragile. And in my own work, uh, what we found is that the carbon tax really has to be at least at 30 to 40 bucks a ton, or also just not enough money to go around to make everyone happy. Yeah, in a cap and trade, um, it's it allows the market to determine the cost of allowances and where you put those. Um, I was at this Reggie presentation yesterday, and the way the states have used proceeds, just um, if you look at it from a, um, a holistic perspective, over 50% of the funds have gone to efficiency, 30% to direct bill assistance, a small portion, like 3% to renewables, 4% to clean tech R&D, um, and a bunch to just the general fund and education. And part of the issue with New Jersey was that the former governor was putting it all in the general fund. And now New Jersey is going to join back into Reggie. And they're saying, all right, well, let's put more into economic development. We'll have a chunk for low and middle income and give governments some discretion as well. And I think that's part of the issue is like, how much discretion do you have when you do when you set up a system where you're able to give some back? What is it really going to? And is it really addressing the problem? So Daniela, when she sent this question in, I emailed her back and she sent some other resources. She works with the New York Renews Coalition, which is pushing for this legislation, actually. And she sent me a study from the Political Economy Research Institute, which uh, has done a lot of economic analysis on uh, green jobs and clean tech. And they found that in New York, with a $35 a ton polluter fee, that would raise about $7 billion a year for New York and could support, you know, well over 100,000 jo jobs in the clean energy space. So the numbers on paper look really good, but the politics of this are complicated. And the problem is when you start raising revenue, everyone wants a piece of the action. And we have seen a lot of money from carbon auctions in uh, Reggie states go to clean energy programs. But there's also a lot of political risk when it comes budget time. People still want some of that money. And in some states, we have seen fights over what to do with that money. And inevitably, when you have that pot, it, it can start to get passed around to things that aren't necessarily part of that original mission. So that's I think that's a big worry for a lot of people who 
are eyeing this policy. It's it's the political risk of how that 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 slush fund, so to speak, gets used. Well, I think the math it matters a little bit, and so when we talk about seven billion dollars. The population of the state of New York is roughly 20 million people. So you're talking about roughly $350 a person of additional tax revenue that's coming into funding that $7 billion, right? So I think we want to start with that. I think, you know, from my perspective, and I've been a bit controversial with some of the folks I've worked with on this, uh, including the Chesapeake Clean Action Network here in D.C. that's pretty far along and passing a carbon tax here in D.C. But I think... Um, I really think that we have to be a little bit less prescriptive about jobs and um, retraining with this money. My sense is most of the money should go back to the people who pay the 350 bucks a person um, as a dividend. Um, and I think secondarily, I think, you know, we should be trying to figure out how to accelerate climate solutions and their deployment. I think the jobs training and a lot of the other pieces have pots of money that are already there for that purpose that should be repurposed to help prepare people for jobs in the clean energy economy. But I think using the core 7 billion for that is very difficult, in my opinion, to like sort of accommodate. Yeah. And I think with with the Reggie states, they're able to use that mechanism to then auction off their credits. And that's been the big economic driver for them. Like $5 billion in economic value has been added. But for states where that are in Reggie and then also have this other piece, I think the issue, Jigger, is that your needs are going to change over time. So you may address some of the issues up front that you originally decide are the most important to fund. So I think the key is to set up legislation that allows for some discretion, but that also sets very clear metrics on what is your end goal? What do you really want to get to? And and make sure that you measure it and track it the whole way so that you know if you need to shift funding to some other piece that you'll be able to do that. Well, back to the old perfect being the enemy of the good thing. Let's say um, the advocates of this policy have to make a compromise and they don't get this money for workforce transition and clean energy specific programs is a carbon tax still effective? Well, that's the whole point of a carbon tax is is it's by definition effective, right? I mean, by definition, energy efficiency becomes that much more cost effective because the price of electricity goes up if it has a lot of carbon in it. Um, the price of natural gas goes up because it has carbon in it, right? The price of gasoline and diesel goes up because it has carbon in it. So by definition, all of the clean energy solutions that are designed to offset high carbon fuels um, become you know more cost effective and have faster paybacks because of the carbon tax. So by definition, all clean energy um, industries are supported. And then the question is, what other complementary policies do you need? Whether it's the energy efficiency mandates that the governor just passed in the state of New York, or whether it's you know um, forcing NIPA to do more to sign power purchase agreements for solar and wind, or you know electric vehicle charging, or whatever it is. Right. But I don't think everyone sees it that way. And we can go back to the Washington state example. As that state was trying to pass a carbon tax in the last election cycle, uh, a lot of the progressive groups didn't like the fact that the money wasn't going toward the programs we've been talking about. And 
it lost a lot of support. These are decade-old policy questions that we've been tackling around why is it that you have these social justice, environmental justice issues around, um, you know, these populations and what programs can we use to actually make sure that we're ending cycles of poverty, et cetera. But I think to say that we need to put the burden of solving these problems on the back of, of decarbonization efforts seems misplaced. And I think Van Jones, you know, I mean, who is a friend of mine, but, you know, we were definitely at odds in a very public way around the Washington State ballot initiative. Um, I think he will come to regret his uh, decision there because we actually did have the votes to pass that measure. And I think that, you know, those guys did a you know disservice to their community by by killing that measure in Washington State. The New York proposal also, the $40 a ton, looks like the net impact on customer costs is going to be really small. I mean, there's certainly a range of costs, um, and it really does depend on how the PSC would, the, the Public Service Commission would set the price and where the carbon residuals would go. Would it would they go back to the customers? So there's like a lot of design issues. Um, but it just seems like if you really want to reduce carbon, then you charge for it. Coming up, we'll dig into Florida's hotly contested congressional race, and two very rich men in Illinois are battling over the governor's mansion. Who will invest the most in the clean energy economy? First, a word from our sponsor, Sense. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy, and make the most of your solar investment. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market is focused on the home now. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. And those real-time insights can let you know all kinds of things about your house. When your kids got home, whether your sump pump is running, whether you left the iron on... If you're like me and you're worrying about these things, then Sense is the right technology for you. And if you have solar, you can compare your whole home energy use and solar production side by side with no monthly fee. For solar installers that want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, or for utilities looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help you too. To find out what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. Now to question number two, which comes from Gabriel Goffman in Florida. I'm a resident down in, uh, you know, very sunny Miami. Um, and as you know, uh, Miami is at severe risk of climate change and it's already happening. And um, my county or the city of Miami and, and the region has an open congressional district. In this opportunity, I have to vote for a new congressperson. What policy should I be asking these candidates about? How do we go about judging these congressional candidates in terms of their policy advocacy? This is a really interesting question because Gabriel lives in a district that is now up for grabs. Ileana ross Leighton, a moderate Republican who's held her seat since 1988, I believe, is not running again for her seat. So Republicans are losing a really important climate ally, someone who's tried to push the party in the right direction. Catherine, how important is this seat in congressional politics when we think about how Republicans embrace climate? Well, I think it's really important because this is ground zero for a lot of what's happening. Um, Miami 
is underwater. Um, there even inland neighborhoods are being flooded um, during high tide. So it is really on the front lines. I think it is incredibly important that in this race, we ask the people running. And one of the people who's running actually is Donna Shalala, who was the secretary of um, housing and human services under President Clinton. She's now the president of University of Miami. Um, but there are other people in the race too. And I think we have to ask every single one of them how are you going to protect the people that you represent? What are you willing to fight for when you go to DC? How much money are you willing to bring back to keep us safe and to stop the water? And to that, um, there are a couple of groups, the Miami Climate Alliance and then the National Center for Climate Integrity have done a lot on trying to look at how do climate polluters pay. So they've bought five billboards in Miami. Um, the next new movie. And it says, when will when all these billboards say, when will climate polluters pay their fair share? So they're, they're looking at, you know, how do we really tax the people who are doing the damage? Because right now the citizens are having to pay for the submersion of their city. So um, Trump lost this district, the 27th district, by nearly 20 percentage points to Hillary Clinton. It is a Democratic leaning seat. Um, so far, when you look at there's a lot of candidates, there are six or seven Democratic candidates and I think uh, the similar number of Republican candidates, but it, it leans Democratic. How do you change the questions? Like if you're Gabriel and you're, you're eyeing all these candidates, do you change the way you ask about energy and climate based on whether these are Republican or Democratic candidates that he's talking to? Any thoughts on the differences and how you raise the issue? This one, so first I want to just differentiate between policy and politics. So, so much of politics is about messaging and what are their big messages that they're saying? Like, how are they going to protect a city that is on the front lines of climate change? And, and how do they talk about it? So it's not even about, do you believe in it? It's how do they speak about climate? And then the policy is like, what is all underneath that? What are they really going to do? Who are they going to charge for this? Miami just voted to tax itself, its own citizens, to pay for $200 million in sea level rise mitigation. Well, are they going to continue to do that? Is there a member of Congress that they decide to elect going to go and find that money for them and champion them as Every member of Congress should be championing the people, championing the people of their district. And this goes back to in 1996, Florida had a constitutional amendment to get sugar companies to pay for agriculture runoff to clean up the pollution from the Everglades. There was no legislation ever written to back it up, and so that was the amendment was just vacated. But the but the procedure of having something that says if you cause this problem you have to pay for it there is some history of that so I think that's something they should be asking about. So I, I I'm on the board of a group called Climate Hawks and so we're you know sort of like backing candidates and lots of other things and you know one of the things that I would say is I think a lot of folks have believed very strongly that by being timid that they would actually get more votes. Um, and I think that if you learn anything from the Trump election, it's really more about being stronger. I think Donna Shalala has shown how not to be strong on climate, and I think she's actually quite weak there. Um, In what way? Well, like, for instance, there's a couple of big initiatives that, you know, folks have to sign on to. Like, I do think they have to sign on to a no fossil fuel money pledge, right? They should all sign a pledge that say that they're not going to take fossil fuel money from any corporations, PACs, otherwise to support their election. I don't think she's done that. 
right? But second of all, like things like the Merkley Sanders, you know, 100% fossil fuel free by by 2050 bill or the Tulsi Gabbard off fossil fuels bill, right? Like how did they vote on Amendment 1, right? Which basically, you know, gave people the right to access solar power in... Um, in Florida, did they back that? Right. I think there are these are big questions that I do think that these elected officials have to be on the record for because I just think a lot of them are like, well, why don't we just be for solar and wind, but not talk about climate change? I don't think that's something that people can do. I, I just think that in general, people really need to be all in at this point. Um, and you see a lot of the benefits from it, right? I mean, across the country. You know, Sean Caston won in Illinois, former clean tech leader. Um, you know, Sam Jamal is bucking the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee um, in California, former, you know, Tesla Solar City uh, employee. Um, you know, you've just got a lot of folks who are really saying, you know what, I'm not going to shy away from climate change and clean energy. I'm going to wear it on my sleeve. I don't think any of the people running on the Democratic party in, in the democratic uh, primary are saying anything about not doing something on climate. I mean, Chalela has said she can't even get hurricane and flood insurance. Nobody can down there because you just, nobody will cover it. And she's also very concerned about climate. I'm not saying I'm, I'm in favor of her other than others, but I don't think anybody down there can ignore it. I think you're right about that. I don't think that means everybody running in every race has to take a Bernie Sanders position on issues. I do think that there's going to be a spectrum of different ways that you position based on what your community needs, because that's what you're in the end supposed to do is protect the people that you represent. So look at what they're going through. One of the things that I find unhealthy in Miami is that there are a lot of foreign investors coming in and buying properties in these high rises. It's, there's even a section called Little Moscow because there's so many investors coming in. They don't care anything about climate change. Luckily, they probably don't vote either, but they just figure, oh, they'll just flip these things and make a bunch of money and not worry about it. There, it's like kind of a trader mentality that they have. Um, and June 1st, hurricane season officially starts. But that's one thing that's that's been an issue in Miami is people with a lot of money from overseas coming in and buying these you know, high-end properties, and that you still have all these neighborhoods that are underwater that are servicing those properties. Little Moscow. Isn't that Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> so the storm... Okay, so this is a good t- opportunity to talk about resilience. The storm season is coming. Atlantic hurricane season is just around the corner. Um Florida has done, you know, a better job since the stimulus package to deploy smart meters to improve um, outage restoration times. And I think that you've clearly seen an improvement in outage restoration over the last um, six or seven years. But there's still largely a failure to build a localized resilient infrastructure based on distributed resources, microgrids. Um, and and Florida just hasn't done a lot to assist in building out those projects. We're having a conversation about resiliency that involves 90-day coal supplies at power plants and saving nuclear power and coal power plants. We need to be shifting the conversation toward localized distributed infrastructure. Florida is ground zero for that, and I just you have to ask candidates about um, their vision for that world. Yeah, and they need to hold FPNL accountable. Um, there isn't coal down there; it's some natural gas and nuclear, and they are trying to do more in solar. But there needs to be a much bigger push for that. Now, Miami has invested 
um, as you say, in building codes, improving codes, but they've also had to, you know, all this stuff is about keeping the water back. So $500 million in infrastructure upgrades, 80 new pumps, elevated roads, more stormwater systems. So they're doing the adaptation piece, but they also need to hold their utilities accountable for the investments that they're making in trying to shift them to different technologies. For Republicans, I think you you have a few options. First, you should establish a baseline against Ross Leitonen because she came out strong in the last few years about climate change and voters rewarded her for it, or at least you know they didn't penalize her for it. So I think you should get really specific about the economic consequences, not just about the science though. So sea level rise, intensifying storms, the direct impact to Floridians today because it's an immediate problem. And if you frame it in a way, if you're asking questions and framing real impacts, and not just some remote body of science that they can wave off, I think you can pin them down a little bit more. And finally, Catherine, back to your point on holding utilities accountable, energy choice has clearly become an issue that voters care about. So if you make it about choice and economic expansion, that feels like a very good place to be, you know, holding their feet to the fire. Yeah, look, I the thing that I'm noticing, at least in this election cycle, is that the clean energy industry and our employees have a lot more money that they're putting into this sector um, and you know, investing in candidates and investing in races. We have a lot of clean energy leaders that are actually running for Congress and uh, for state houses. And so I do think keeping everyone uh, principled, though, and accountable matters, right? And so in the same way that, Stephen, you were talking about you know, asking good questions and using the right verbiage, I think, to really solicit the right responses from folks. I also think that, you know, we need to hold folks, you know, to account to make sure that they're being principled, um, you know, as we move down this road. I mean, there's 50 state legislator um, candidates who've refused to take any money from Dominion Energy in Virginia, um, which I think is a good policy. You know, folks should stop taking money from their local utility company. Yeah. And I think another thing that I have mentioned before on the show is that we shouldn't necessarily give money to people in hopes that they'll do the right thing, like actually hold them accountable and don't give them money if they don't do the right thing and reward them when they do. Let's go on to our third question. This one comes from Sam Schiller in Illinois. My question for you is, if you were the environmental policy advisor to J.D. Pritzker's campaign for governor in Illinois, what set of policies would you recommend that would decarbonize the state that would lead to economic development? It would also play well in the general election. Well, this is a super interesting race as well. It pits Bruce Rauner, the GOP incumbent governor, against J.B. Pritzker, who is the Democratic candidate, a member of the Pritzker family. Um, Jigger, you're from Illinois. Help us understand this race and where energy and environment play. Well, and so, I mean, the good thing about the incumbent governor is that, you know, unlike four out of the last six governors of Illinois, he didn't land himself in jail, which is positive. <laughs> um, There's still time. But, um, you know, look, I, I think that I think it's important to note that under the current GOP governor, um, we passed a you know pretty landmark bill to keep the nuclear power plants open and then add another $7 billion for clean energy um, and efficiency programs in the state, right? And there was a huge coalition of stakeholders that got that done. I'm not sure that the governor championed the bill, but he definitely signed it. And, you know, I think that when you look at J.B. Pritzker's uh, website, you know, he's sort of light on clean energy language. And, you know, he's got a huge amount of support for downstate coal, which has been a big constituent 
see for a long time, even though there's very few jobs there. When I was a, a student in college at the University of Illinois, um, we had a huge center for you know coal research because Illinois has really bad high sulfur coal. And so, you know, you can imagine that, you know, we can't really burn much of it because it puts you in non-compliance with an EPA. Um, and so there were a lot of research studies on how to use that coal and how to clean it up and all that stuff. Um, but I think that the current governor, I mean, yeah, governor candidate on the Democrat side, J.B. Pritzker, is trying to, you know, say the right things to all populations. Like he wants to save a lot of the downstate coal plants, which are owned by Dynergy, even though a recent study came out last week that showed that, um, none of those plants were required for resiliency or reliability for the grid. Um, so this is another place where I think that he's not doing himself any favors by saying what everybody wants to hear. He should be more principled. Wait, I thought that that Governor Rahner was the the guy who was championing keeping those Dynagy plants open. And it seems like uh, Pritzker has some generic language on his website criticizing Ronner for that. I admittedly don't know the details of the politics, but my sense was that Pritzker was actually against it. No, he's also, he's against the bailout for Dynergy, for sure. But he's definitely for keeping the coal jobs in Southern Illinois and trying to figure out a way to, you know, keep coal alive down there. And I think it's important for him to say, you know, look, Coal's going away, you know, the guy in the sweater, right, from the presidential debate who worked at that uh, um, Peabody Ken, coal Ken mine. Bone. Ken Bone. Ken Bone, right? I mean, and just tell him, look, your Never job's forget. going away, right? And we're sorry about that. We'll retrain you. We'll get you into another job. But ultimately, um, these jobs are going away, and Illinois needs to move forward, right? Illinois has a tremendous amount of job creation that it's already starting in solar, wind, energy efficiency, and electric vehicles. And it's time to continue that leadership as opposed to going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So Pritzker's uh, platform does talk about moving toward 100% renewable energy. So he is using those words. He's saying he wants clean water, expanding energy efficiency, and he wants to honor Paris and join the U.S. Climate Alliance of all these governors that are signing up to honor the Paris commitment. So he is taking a stand on that. I think that's really important. I think another component of Illinois is that it is a real hub for innovation. So you have you know, re- a lot of universities, research institutions, the Clean Energy Trust, a whole lot of other innovation hubs. And I think focusing on technology and innovation and jobs is going to be greatly to their benefit. So I think in addition to saying we want 100% renewables and we want to adhere to climate goals, we need to talk about innovation in Illinois. He's, he's using a lot of the language that environmentalists or clean energy advocates use. But when you actually look at his policy stances on job creation, on bringing manufacturing back, jobs back to Illinois, he doesn't mention anything about renewable energy. And as we know, wind and solar are the fastest, some of the fastest growing um, job sectors in this country. They continue to be. The fact that he's not integrating renewable energy jobs into his manufacturing and economic development plans is telling to me. And so if I were his environmental energy advisor, I would say, let's talk about this enormous economic opportunity. This is where hundreds and thousands of jobs are being created, and we need to capture that economic value. So that seems like an obvious win to me. 
I totally agree because he does talk a lot about new business creation, small business opportunities, manufacturing, but is really not very sector specific. And I think if he focused more on clean energy, it'd be to his benefit. And this is something that we've been faced with for a long time, right? I mean, I think I can give people a pass in 2004, 2008 for not really understanding um, the potential of clean energy. I mean, I get the fact that there's a lot of issues and a lot of people have to focus on them. But I think, I mean, we're just so large now. I mean, the largest job creator since... uh, you know, 2008, you know, wind technician and solar technician are the two, you know, um, uh, fastest growing jobs, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So I, I just I just think that at some point, we just can't keep giving people a pass for being sort of like lukewarm to slightly warm on our issues. Like they just they, I think they have to be full throated supporters of what we're doing or else, you know, we should criticize them for not being. Hey, to those three listeners, thank you for sending in your questions. We got a ton more, and we're kind of grouping them together in thematic shows. So we'll get to more over time. And to others, please send in your questions at podcasts at greentechmedia.com if you want to get your question potentially on the show. Now let's turn to the free electron. Jigger, what is your free electron this week? Well, just staying on the... um the climate hawks piece, you know, so we've had a lot of primaries the last month or so and climate hawks went four for four in the races that it endorsed this cycle. So Sean Caston, um, Jana Lynn Sanchez in Texas, uh, Kara Eastman in Nebraska, and then Jess King in Pennsylvania. So all four of these guys and gals have said that they really are going to be pushing for strong cap and trade legislation, strong 100% renewable energy legislation, and you know, taken a no fossil fuel uh, money pledge. And I just think it's it's important for folks to not necessarily support them financially, but just to recognize that there are people out there that are actually um, you know like running on their values and winning. Well, the climate hawks movement was unique because. It was a bunch of people waking up and saying, we got to focus on all these local races. Um, climate champions are way too focused on specific national policies that are very hard to get pushed forward. And instead, we should be focusing on local races. And that approach is bearing fruit. Catherine, what is your free electron? Yeah, so see, I'm still holding out for um, people to support FERC, and I got one one of my wishes yesterday when Senators Whitehouse and Markey led a letter um, that 16 senators signed on to, including Heinrich Shaheen, Blumenthal, Hassan, King, Feinstein, Sanders, Cortez Masto, Reed of Rhode Island, Wyden, Merkley, of course, Harris, Booker, and Schatz. Um, and they have basically urged FERC to go forward with distributed energy resource rule. You know, they have a notice of proposed rulemaking, which is out for um, additional commentary and additional building of the record. I think the comments are due June 26th, and uh, they're urging that to move forward, and they're citing a lot of what we talk about, you know, how how renewables are creating jobs, 677,000 American jobs, and 15% of our energy supply, so they're pushing for it forward. And granted, it is a Democratic only letter, but it's still good that people are focused on FERC and trying to make sure that they do the right thing too. Is that consequential to have that lawmaker backing? 
It is in that FERC now has to answer the letter. They have to respond. And so, uh, and they, they've met with the commissioners. I mean, the good news to me is that FERC still seems to be retaining a non-political stance on most issues that they're still trying to um, build a record. They have made some pretty bad decisions about climate recently and not taking it into consideration. Uh, There was a contentious vote on this recently about not taking climate into consideration uh, on pipeline uh, issue, you know, when they're approving pipelines. But I think all in all, it's very hard for them to be political on some of these issues when you're building the record and you really have a record of evidence to support uh, your decisions. I think you've got your new coffee table book, Letters to FERC. Sounds awful, actually. But this one I liked. (laughs) If you get sick of your job, maybe you can become a publisher. Uh, Many of you may have seen in a long series of tweets over the last day or so, Musk has lashed out at the press and floated this idea of starting a website to rate media outlets. You know, he's... It seems he's finally had it with the skeptical press coverage of his Model 3 rollout and uh, recent reports on the company's poor workplace safety record. He even um, called journalists at the Center for Investigative Reporting, which reported on that safety story that I mentioned a couple weeks back, a bunch of rich Berkeley kids undertaking an ideologically motivated disinformation campaign. Um, you know, so so why is this important? Uh, I know we have a ton of Tesla fanatics who listen to this show and read GTM, a ton of Tesla employees too. And in theory, right, Musk is couching this in a benevolent way. He's saying, oh, people don't trust media outlets. We need some sort of rating system so that we can help the best media outlets rise to the top. But I think this pattern of behavior should really concern you. And let me lay it out for you. Peter Thiel used his billions to secretly wage legal war against Gawker, leading to its shutdown. Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas casino mogul, secretly bought the Las Vegas Review-Journal and abruptly killed stories and changed the editorial focus. And of course, we have Donald Trump, who's used Twitter to relentlessly attack the press and call them enemies of the state. And if you find yourself on Elon's side, because you think, you know, the media publishes too many negative stories about him, I think you should revisit your standards because you can't pick and choose when you decide to believe in media institutions. Many of the same people I've seen on Twitter who take Musk's side when the New York Times or Bloomberg report something negative on Tesla probably relish in a scandalous story about Trump. You either believe in the reporting process or you don't. And the media makes mistakes. Journalists are not perfect. But Petulant tirades against the fourth estate because you don't like certain stories should worry anyone who cares about a healthy media system. So I, I had to mention it. It's been on my mind. Elon, please just go make some cars. Please make some cars. Agree. <laughs> We've all had bad stories written about us. We've all gotten bad press. That's okay. It happens. And I'll keep making some podcasts. Well, we're off for a couple of weeks. Thanks for sticking with us, folks. We will be back with tons of delicious new content in the middle of June, the week of June 11th. Um, Subscribe to us, rate us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Pass a link to your friends and family. Again, send in your questions. Uh, We rely on you. You know, we have ways to promote this podcast, but really you are the advocates for the show and you help us grow our audience. So please spread the word. Catherine, have a wonderful couple of weeks. We'll see you soon. 
Thanks. You too. I'm going to be rooting for the Caps in the Stanley Cup playoffs, of course. You were supposed to be studying for this podcast and said you were watching hockey last night. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> Jigger, are you going to be watching hockey? What else are you going to be doing the next couple of weeks? I'm going to be celebrating the unofficial start of summer this weekend. So happy unofficial start of summer, everybody. Woohoo! Well, with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Go celebrate this weekend, folks. We'll catch you in a couple weeks. Take care. Thank you.